This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, September 18th, 2018. Episode 57, concerning dive doppers, paper money, and a halfway house for souls. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today, we arrive at the easternmost destination of our Medieval Travel Writers series, ending our journey on the banks of the mighty Yangtze River. We warmed up with a little jaunt west into Wales with Gerald of the same, before hitting our main route along the Silk Road, traversing Iran with Marco Polo, proceeding through India with Ibn Battuta, and now, at last, arriving in China with the Franciscan missionary Odoricus. As I mentioned back in the start of the series, all of these authors, well, setting aside Gerald, uh, are cited extensively in Henry Yule's footnotes to his translation of the Mirabilia Descripta of Jordanus, Bishop of Columbum in India, which is the first medieval death trip audiobook, which you can get by supporting us for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. Jordanus's book covers much of the same territory, from the Greek islands through Turkey and Persia, touching on Ethiopia, describing India extensively, as that was where Jordanus had most of his personal experience, and even reaching to the court of the Great Khan in China, albeit by second-hand report. If you were going to make a Mount Rushmore of medieval Westerners who described their eastern travels, Marco Polo, Ibn Battuta, Jordanus, and Odoricus would be pretty good candidates. The Jewish traveler Benjamin of Tudela is also pretty important, uh, though he didn't go further east than Persia, and mainly covers all the different lands touching the Mediterranean. And John Mandeville, or as Yule refers to him, the Lying Mandeville, gives us a historically significant text because of its popularity, but its value as documentary travel writing has been greatly discounted. But of the top four texts, Odoricus's was the only one that was pretty much unknown to me when I was reading through Jordanus. It's the shortest of the four, which is probably why it has received comparatively less attention. It's less detailed than Polo or Ibn Battuta, but uses more narrative than Jordanus does, who tends to have an encyclopedic approach. It is interesting to think about the purposes each of these writers, or narrators as the case may be, had in recording their experiences. Here's my own rough sense based on what I've read, and that would be all of Jordanus and Odoricus, but only bits of Polo and Ibn Battuta at present. My sense is that Polo is writing a kind of guidebook for future merchants. In what we heard in episode 55, he's quite good about telling people how long it takes to get from one waypoint to another, what kind of provisions one might need, and what the dangers of the road are. Ibn Battuta is attuned to the political climate around each of the places he visits and how well they treat foreign dignitaries. I wouldn't call it a guidebook for diplomats in the same way that Polo is a guidebook for merchant caravans, but it would certainly have a distinct appeal to political animals. Jordanus and Odoricus are harder to pin down. Jordanus writes much more in the tradition of a Christian natural historian, giving a lot of attention to plants and animals and natural features. When he's describing the wonders of the East, I think he's very much doing it in the spirit of celebrating the diversity of creation. These are wonders worth wondering at because they show how incredible the world God made is but he's also making a case for the importance and viability of European mission work, so there might be an element of proto-colonial cataloging of valuable resources ripe for the plucking. 
His book is quite thin on any sort of practical advice for travelers, but it is a kind of sales pitch brochure for missionary work in India. Adoricus kind of provides a guidebook for future missionaries, tracking where they can find houses that will take them in and similar information. He's very focused on people and their customs, much more so than on the marvels of nature. There was a series of travel guides popular in the 1990s called Culture Shock. Uh, they appear to still be around with a few new additions in the 2010s, but I get the feeling that print travel guides are fading into obsolescence. But anyway, I loved the Culture Shock books as a kid, since they focused on highlighting cultural differences and points of etiquette and were pitched to people who wanted to actually live in another country for an extended period of time rather than just sightsee. Odoricus feels to me a bit like he's writing a 14th century culture shock book. So let's take a closer look at him. Odoricus is called in our text Friar Odoricus of Friuli, but is also better known as the Blessed Odoric of Pordenone, Pordenone being a town in Friuli, a region of northeast Italy. Odoric is probably the more common way to refer to him these days, but I'm going to go with Odoricus because that's how the first few sources I consulted referred to him, and that kind of burned itself into my brain. It also helped stop me from accidentally calling him Orderic, as in our historian Orderic Vitalis. Odoricus was born circa 1286, which puts him about a generation after Marco Polo and a generation before Ibn Battuta. Some early authorities claim he was a child of a Bohemian, or Czech, soldier garrisoned in the town, um, though more recent scholarship has disputed this. We don't know much about his early life other than at some point he joined the Franciscan order and soon became known for his asceticism and pursuit of a solitary life. He started on his eastern travels around 1316, when he would have been 30 years old, reached India by 1321, and spent three years in northern China at some point between then and 1328. He returned home at some point after 1328, and died of an illness in January of 1331 in his early 40s. Odoricus's journey took him along similar eastern trade routes as the other travelers in our series, passing through Constantinople, then across Iran and down to Hormuz and by sea to Malabar, and then again across the Indian Ocean to the great ports of China. At many of these places, he stayed in Franciscan houses which had been established, which is a reminder that while we only have a few detailed narratives of 13th and 14th century European travelers to the East, these writers were circulating through an existing network of Western merchants and missionaries. At least, that's certainly true for Giordanus and Marco Polo and Odoricus. It's a little different for Ibn Battuta, uh, there you have to substitute political outposts and envoys in place of missionary ones. Also, like our previous two travelers, Odoricus did not write down his own narrative, but recounted it to a fellow friar who put it down in Latin. His legacy and the reputation of his text were cemented by accounts of miracles associated with him which earned him beatification. Though some hagiographers ascribe a few miracles to him during his life— uh, none are given in his own text, he acquired a cult after his death, with his relics being associated with miracle cures. In fact, stay tuned for an episode covering the feeding frenzy for relics that erupted around his corpse while it was lying in state before burial. While older authorities make reference to letters and sermons written by Adoricus, his travels is the only text from him that survives today. 
the travels is its common name today. In his own time, it was sometimes called Concerning the Wonders of the World. It was kind of an instant hit and was copied many times throughout the 14th century and was later plagiarized by the aforesaid John Mandeville in his far more fanciful book from slightly later in the 14th century. Much like Marco Polo, readers of Adoricus in his day and in the following couple of centuries found much of what he described hard to believe. Even Odorcus's defenders and biographers asserted that his account wouldn't be believable were it not for the known sanctity and virtue of its author. There are some well-known second-hand traveler's tales and a few questionable supernatural events in the friar's work, but also much of what was considered beyond belief are details about the lands and peoples that have since been verified by modern scholarship. Yule offers a nice summation of Odorcus's reliability. Quote, it is true indeed that our friar is not merely undiscriminating in the acceptance of what he has heard, but also sometimes looser in his statements of what he relates, or professes to relate, from actual experience, than other travelers of his day, such as Giordanus and Marignoli. But this seems to come rather from the fact that Odoric is a man of inferior refinement, both morally and intellectually, than that he introduces willful figments. Whilst the notes attached to his narrative will prove, I trust, how certainly they are the footsteps of a genuine traveler that we are following. And in judging him, we must not forget the disadvantages under which his story labors in coming to us by dictation, or mainly so, and that a dictation accomplished in illness and taken down by a friar of probably still less literature than his own. And it is to be remembered that Odoric traveled with neither the skepticism of a man of science nor the experience of a man of the world. His good faith is indicated if his stories are those really current about the places which he visited. His description of Sago in the archipelago is not free from errors, but they are the errors of an eyewitness. His mention of the annoyance from leeches in the forests of Ceylon and of a two-headed bird in that island are shown to be the notes of a real visitor. So is his whole account of southern China. His notices of the custom of fishing with cormorants, of the habits of letting the fingernails grow long, and of compressing the women's feet, as well as of the division of the Khan's empire into twelve provinces with four chief viziers, are peculiar to him, I believe, among all the European travelers of the age. Polo mentions none of them. The names which he assigns to the Chinese post stations and to the provincial boards of administration, the technical Turkish term which he uses for a sack of rice, etc., etc., are all tokens of the reality of his experience. End quote. A further difficulty lies in the number of variations in manuscript copies of the travels. There are unusually wide differences in phrasing and expression between copies, some of which introduce errors of misreading or misconstruing parts of the narrative and descriptions. And indeed, the excerpt I'll be reading today comes from an early translation of a manuscript that is, you might say, a bit out of focus in terms of portraying the original text. But our translation is part of an important historical text in and of itself, and is a good one to cap off our medieval travel writing series with. This is the translation of Adoricus by Richard Hacklett, as presented in Volume 4 of his magisterial 12-volume work, the Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation, made by sea or overland to the remote and farthest distant quarters of the earth at any time within the compass of these 1600 years. 
This book was published in the final years of the 16th century and featured original texts of explorers' narratives in English, Latin, French, Spanish, and other languages, with accompanying translations into early modern English as needed. I'm going to talk a bit more about Hacklett and his namesake society after the text. All I'll say now is that I've only lightly modernized it in spots. It's quite clear for 400-year-old English. I'll also clarify before we start a little bit of some of Odoricus's technical vocabulary. One of the features of our excerpt is his description of Chinese paper or silken currency. As part of that, we get a bunch of financial and taxation terminology. Uh, it's more exciting than it sounds. Uh, so here are some glosses of some of that. Adorcus talks about Baelish, the Persian name for a silver ingot and the standard unit of accounting in the Mongol Empire. He uses this term to refer to an amount of paper currency equivalent to the amount in silver. The other unit he gives is the toman, another Persian word for a Mongol unit. In Mongolian, the word generally just means 10,000, and it could refer to military units or any group of 10,000 things, but it was also used as a term for currency, eventually becoming a unit itself. In borrowed usages, it sometimes just means 1,000, uh, but this doesn't really make much difference for our reading today. Uh, however, the toman was an official unit of currency in Iran up until 1932, when it was replaced by the rial. We also have a fun bit of old-fashioned terminology in our early modern English translation. Hacklett translates the Latin phrase reliquiis que supererant de mensa as broken relics which remained of the table. This phrase occurs in the context of a monastery, so one might easily assume that relics means relics. But the Latin from which we take relic just means generally remnants, and in this case, the remnants of the mensa, so table, but also feast, which would be leftovers, food scraps. Uh, and that's a specific meaning for relic in English, not uncommon in the 16th through 18th centuries, sort of food scraps. And you're going to see these relics getting eaten, so it's a good thing to clarify uh, what this means before you envision saint's bones being gobbled up. We also have a few place names, which I'll give their modern forms for here, for those who know a bit of Chinese geography. If you don't, I'll keep it quick. So, we have the city of Foucault, which is modern Fuzhou, Canasia, which is Hangzhou, Jiangsu is Nanjing, and the river Thalei is the Yangtze. And with that, we're ready to join up with Odoricus as he crosses into Fujian province on the southeast coast of mainland China. Traveling more eastward, I came unto a city named Fuko, which contains thirty miles in circuit, wherein be exceeding great and fair cocks, and all their hens are as white as the very snow, having wool instead of feathers, like unto sheep. It is a most stately and beautiful city, and stands upon the sea. Then I went eighteen days' journey on further, and passed by many provinces and cities, and on the way I went over a certain great mountain, upon the one side whereof I beheld all living creatures to be as black as a coal, and the men and women on that side differed somewhat in manner of living from others. 
Howbeit, on the other side of the said hill, every living thing was snow white, and the inhabitants in their manner of living were altogether unlike unto others. There, all married women carry in token that they have husbands a great trunk of horn upon their heads. From thence I traveled eighteen days' journey further, and came unto a certain great river, and entered also into a city, whereunto belongs a mighty bridge to pass the said river. And my host, with whom I sojourned, being desirous to show me some sport, said unto me, Sir, if you want to see any fish taken, go with me. Then he led me unto the aforesaid bridge, carrying in his arms with him certain dive-doppers, or waterfowls, bound unto a company of poles, and about every one of their necks he tied a thread, lest they should eat the fish as fast as they took them, and he carried three great baskets with him also. Then he loosed the dive-doppers from the poles, which presently went into the water, and within less than the space of one hour caught as many fish as filled the three baskets, which, being full, my host untied the threads from about their necks, and entering the second time into the river, they fed themselves with fish, and being satisfied, they returned and suffered themselves to be bound unto the said poles as they were before. And when I did eat of those fishes, I thought they were exceeding good. Traveling thence many days' journey, at length I arrived at another city called Canasia, which signifies in our language the city of heaven. Never in all my life did I see so great a city, for it contains in circuit a hundred miles, nor saw I any plot thereof which was not thoroughly inhabited. Yea, I saw many houses of ten or twelve stories high, one above another. It has mighty large suburbs containing more people than the city itself. Also, it has twelve principal gates, and about the distance of eight miles in the highway unto every one of the said gates stands a city as big by estimation as Venice and Padua. The foresaid city of Canasia is situated in waters or marshes, which always stand still, neither ebbing nor flowing, because it has a defense for the wind as Venice has. In this city there are more than ten thousand and two bridges, many of which I numbered and passed over them, and upon every one of those bridges stand certain watchmen of the city, keeping continual watch and ward about the said city for the great Khan, the Emperor of Cathay. The people of this country say they have one duty enjoined unto them by their lord. For every fire pay one Baelish as tribute, and a Baelish is five papers or pieces of silk, which are worth one florin and a half of our coin. Ten or twelve households are accounted for one fire, and so pay tribute but for one fire only. All those tributary fires amount unto the number of eighty-five toman, with other four toman of the Saracens, which make eighty-nine in all. And one toman consists of ten thousand fires. The residue of the people of the city are some of them Christians, some merchants, and some travelers through the country. Whereupon I marveled much how such an infinite number of persons could inhabit and live together. There is great abundance of food in this city, as namely of bread and wine, and especially of hog flesh, with other necessaries. In the foresaid city, four of our friars had converted a mighty and rich man unto the faith of Christ, at whose house I continually abode for so long time as I remained in the city. At a certain time he said to me, Ara, that is to say, Father, will you go and behold the city? And I said, Yea. Then we embarked ourselves and directed our course unto a certain great monastery, where, being arrived, he called a religious person with whom he was acquainted, saying to him concerning me, This Rabban Francus, that is to say, this religious Frenchman, 
comes from the western parts of the world, and is now going to the city of Kambaleth to pray for the life of the great Khan, and therefore you must show him some rare thing, so that when he returns into his own country, he may say, This strange sight or novelty I have seen in the city of Canasia. Then the said religious man took two great baskets full of broken relics which remained of the table, and led me unto a little walled park, the door whereof he unlocked with his key, and there appeared unto us a pleasant fair green plot, into the which we entered. In the said green stands a little mount in the form of a steeple, replenished with fragrant herbs and fine shady trees. And while we stood there, he took a cymbal or bell, and rang therewith, as they used to ring dinner or bevoir in cloisters, at the sound whereof many creatures of diverse kinds came down from the mount, some like apes, some like cats, and some having faces like men. And while I stood beholding them, they gathered themselves together about him, to the number of forty-two hundred of those creatures, putting themselves in good order, before whom he set a platter, and gave them the said fragments to eat. And when they had eaten, he rang upon his cymbal the second time, and they all returned unto their former places. Then, wondering greatly at the matter, I demanded what kind of creatures those might be. They are, quoth he, the souls of noble men which we do here feed, for the love of God who governs the world. And as a man was honorable or noble in this life, so his soul after death enters into the body of some excellent beast or other. But the souls of simple and rustic people do possess the bodies of more vile and brutish creatures. Then I began to refute that foul error, howbeit my speech did not at all prevail with him, for he could not be persuaded that any soul might remain without a body. From thence I departed unto a certain city named Chilenzo, the walls whereof contained forty miles in circuit. In this city there are three hundred and sixty bridges of stone, the fairest that I ever saw, and it is well inhabited, having a great navy belonging thereunto, and abounding with all kinds of victuals and other commodities. And thence I went unto a certain river called Thalay, which, where it is most narrow, is seven miles broad, and it runs through the midst of the land of Pygmae, whose chief city is called Kakam, and is one of the goodliest cities in the world. These Pygmaeans are three of my spans high, and they make larger and better cloth of cotton and silk than any other nation under the sun. And coasting along by the said river, I came unto a certain city named Janzu, in which city there is one receptacle for the friars of our order, and there be also three churches of the Nestorians. This Janzu is a noble and great city, containing forty-eight toman of tributary fires, and in it are all kinds of victuals and great plenty of such beasts, fowls, and fishes as Christians usually live upon. The lord of the same city has in yearly revenues for salt only fifty toman of Baelish, and one Baelish is worth a florin and a half of our coin, insomuch that one toman of Baelish amounts to the value of fifteen thousand florins. Howbeit the said lord favors his people in one respect, for sometimes he forgives them freely two hundred toman, lest there should be any scarcity or dearth among them. There is a custom in this city, that when any man is determined to banquet his friends, going about unto certain taverns or cook's houses appointed for the same purpose, he says unto every particular host, You shall have such and such of my friends, whom you must entertain in my name, and so much will I bestow upon the banquet. And by that means his friends are better feasted at diverse places than they should have been at one. 
Ten miles from the said city, at the head of the foresaid river of Thalay, there is a certain other city called Montu, which has the greatest navy that I saw in the whole world. All their ships are as white as snow, and they have banqueting houses in them, and many other rare things also, which no man would believe unless he had seen them with his own eyes. So, we not only touch back to Ibn Battuta with the junks, with houses practically built on them, but we call all the way back to our Gerald of Wales episode that started our series off with the reference to the land of pygmies, though this one is even further removed from the East African classical sources of the term than Wales was. As to the main content of the narrative itself, uh, the fishing with leashed cormorants is a real practice that still exists. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. And while paper money was a kind of marvel to the medieval traveler, it's a perfectly ordinary concept to us. The visit to the Monastery of Reincarnated Souls, however, is a little more complicated. Scholars have identified the place as the Buddhist temple of Ling Yin Se, founded in the early 4th century CE, destroyed in the 9th century, and reconstructed in the 10th. In legend, its founder, a monk from India, speaking of travelers to China, had an intelligent, immortal monkey companion, and the place has been associated with primates throughout its history. Up through the 18th century, the site was a habitat for gibbons, who are apes and not monkeys, um, and in Chinese poetry, the gibbon was used as a representation of the gentleman. It was an animal noted for a relative lack of brutishness compared to other primates. The monks developed a relationship with their simian neighbors, and in the 5th century, they built an area called the Monkey's Terrace. One Chinese historian of the 10th century describes what they did here thusly, quote, Whenever the monks finished eating their vegetarian meal, they would gather the food offerings and send them to the Monkey's Terrace. They would instruct the mountain's children to call twice or thrice, and the flock of monkeys would come scrambling, end quote doesn't sound too far removed from what Odoricus reports. Some would even say it's a bit too close in its phrasing for comfort. Because a problem emerges when we note that this monkey's terrace was destroyed along with most of the rest of the monastery in the 9th century. I can't get a clear answer on whether it was rebuilt with the rest of the monastery, but at least one scholar, A.C. Mool, writing about Odoricus in 1920, asserts that the summoning of monkeys at Lingyan can be found described in 14th century Chinese guidebooks, but only as something that occurred in the past. For this reason, he claims that Odoricus didn't witness this event at all, but cribbed the story from these guidebooks, or perhaps was told it by a guide. There is another traveler from about 20 years after Odoricus, a man named John or Giovanni de Marignoli who also described seeing a summoning of apes with men's faces at the same place. Mool is similarly skeptical of Marignoli's account, but I'll let you judge for yourself. Here it is as translated by Henry Yule. There are also certain animals with countenances almost like a man's, 
more particularly in the possession of the Queen of Saba and in the cloister at Camp Say, in that most famous monastery where they keep so many monstrous animals, which they believe to be the souls of the departed. Not that they really are so, for I ascertained by irrefragable proof that they are irrational animals, except, of course, insofar as the devil may make use of them as he once did of the serpent's tongue. Such delusions those unbelievers may deserve to bring upon themselves because of their unbelief. But otherwise, I must say that their rigid attention to prayer and fasting and other religious duties, if they but held the true faith, would far surpass any strictness and self-denial that we practice. However, as I was going to say, those animals at Camp Say usually come to be fed at a given signal, but I observed that they never would come when a cross was present, though as soon as it was removed, they would come. Hence, I conclude that these monsters are not men, although they may seem to have some of the properties of men, but are merely of the character of apes. Indeed, if we had never seen apes before, we should be apt to look upon them as men. Unless, forsooth, they be monsters such as I have been speaking of before, which come of Adam's race indeed, but are exceptional and unusual births. Seeing as Mool also presents the monkey summoning described in the guidebooks as having been a singular event linked to the myth of the founder, which is a rather different thing from the historian's description I quoted earlier of a more routine feeding, I'm not sure that I'm as skeptical of Odorcus's narrative as he is. Maybe the idea of the animals having human faces is something that could have been reinforced by local legends, even if it wasn't quite what the friar saw. But even then, the idea that you might say a monkey or ape has a human face? Yeah? So what? Uh, I don't think that's an unreasonable statement. I imagine there is some exaggeration in the numbers and exact diversity of the animals and the absolute rigorousness of their discipline, but that he saw a reasonably large number of gibbons of different colors being summoned to feed by a gong or bell seems entirely within the realm of possibility to me. Also that, as in Marignoli's account, that they might be hesitant to approach their customary space when a foreign object has been put into the middle of it, like a cross— this also does not seem far-fetched or supernatural to me. I mentioned earlier that our translator, Richard Hacklett, wasn't working from the best source manuscripts. Henry Yule offers a few further corrections to Hacklett's version, such as pointing out that what he renders as a description of Chinese apartment towers of 10 or 12 stories tall is a misreading of a statement that 10 or 12 families lived together in one building although other sources do mention residential structures five stories high, which is still pretty impressive in a medieval context. And generally, Yule takes issue with most of the specific numbers given for anything, from the number of bridges in the city to the number of animals at the monastery, he gives 3,000 rather than 4,200, uh, and the various amounts of money. These all seem subject to easy corruption in manuscript transmission. Uh, but not being, to my knowledge, historians of Chinese taxation policy, I doubt any of us are too bothered by that. So instead, let's close with a discussion of our 16th century translator, Richard Hacklett, whose name reverberates through the bibliography of this little traveler's series. First, a note on that name, since it's not apparent in an audio medium, it has an unusual spelling. Hacklett, H-A-K-L-U-Y-T. 
When I first came across it, I assumed it had to be Dutch or something. But it's Welsh, probably from some association with the Forest of Clwyd, C-L-W-Y-D, which late medieval spelling transmutes to C-L-U-Y-T, at least in this name. I got my pronunciation of the name from online biographical dictionaries, uh, though in prepping for this episode, I spotted a note on the homepage of the Hacklet Society, uh, which says his name was almost certainly pronounced Hacklut, though they don't actually say that's how members of the society actually pronounce the name today. Um, I also see now that Wikipedia offers three different pronunciations, none of which have quite as fronted a vowel uh, so not a short I, but something more like a schwa, hack-lut, rather than hack-lit. Um, they also offer the stranger hacklewit. Uh, so I kind of think this all means one is pretty safe whatever route one goes. Anyway, Richard Hacklet was born in Herefordshire in 1553. While visiting a cousin, also confusingly named Richard Hacklet, uh, our Hacklet, then a young boy, came across a book of geography and a map of the world lying open on a table and had the entire course of his life redirected. He became fascinated by the exploration of the world. He completed a degree at Christchurch, Oxford, and then went on on his own to study geography, learning six more languages in order to be able to read the tales of different travelers and explorers. The mission that he set for himself was to advance the state of British exploration, partly by improving the education of sailors in the finer points of navigation and cartography, and also by encouraging better record-keeping of exploratory voyages and discoveries. Uh, For example, the journeys of John Cabot, who is credited as discovering the coast of North America, if you set aside the Native Americans and Icelanders, uh, Cabot left almost no surviving documentary record of his travels, compared to the copious letters, journals, and charters of Columbus, a situation Hacklett saw as a national embarrassment. He was a deep believer in and activist for colonization. His first book, printed in 1582 when he was 29, was entitled Diverse Voyages Touching the Discovery of America, which collected accounts from many sources to describe what was known about the east coast of North America, not just to celebrate the achievements of the explorers, but to present this land to his fellow Britons as a ripe source for colonization. The first volume of his magnum opus, The Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation, came out 16 years later, with all 12 volumes appearing over the course of the next few years. This work broadened the view to all four corners of the earth, and is the work from which our translation of Odorcus comes. You might wonder how an Italian traveler made it into a collection of English discoveries. Hacklet doesn't really make it explicitly clear, but presumably this is because Odoricus had a companion for much of his journey, James of Ireland. That still doesn't quite account for the English nation qualifier, uh, but I guess Ireland was held by the English king by personal union in the 16th century, so I suppose that's the reasoning. Hacklet's patriotic goals are laid out in the dedicatory epistle to the first edition of the Principal Navigations. He writes, quote, I heard in speech and read in books other nations miraculously extolled for their discoveries and notable enterprises by sea, but the English, of all others, for their sluggish security and continual neglect of the like attempts, especially in so long and happy a time of peace, either ignominiously reported or exceedingly condemned. Which singular opportunity, if some other people of our neighbors had been blessed with, their protestations are often vehement, they would far otherwise have used." 
Thus, both hearing and reading the obloquy of our nation, and finding few or none of our own men able to reply herein, and further, not seeing any man to have care to recommend to the world the industrious labors and painful travels of our countrymen, for stopping the mouths of the reproachers, myself, being the last winter returned from France with the Honorable the Lady Sheffield, for her passing good behavior highly esteemed in all the French court, determined, notwithstanding all difficulties, to undertake the burden of that work wherein all others pretended ignorance, or lack of leisure, or want of sufficient argument, whereas, to speak truly, the huge toil and the small profit to ensue were the chief causes of the refusal. I call the work a burden, in consideration that these voyages lay so dispersed, scattered, and hidden in several hucksters' hands, that I now wonder at myself to see how I was able to endure the delays, curiosity, and backwardness of many from whom I was to receive my originals, so that I have just cause to make that complaint of the maliciousness of diverse in our own time, which Pliny made of the men of his age. Quote, we, on the contrary, at the present day, make it our object to conceal and suppress the results of our labors and to defraud our fellow men of blessings, even which have been purchased by others. End quote. And end quote for Hacklet too. Um, and I inserted a translation of the Pliny by Bostock and Riley as Hacklet left it in the original Latin in his text. The principal navigations not only helped arouse interest in English exploration and colonization, but is thought to have been plumbed for material by Shakespeare, Spencer, Johnson, and Milton, among other early modern literary luminaries. It's a significant legacy. And beyond the effects of his writing, he also played a direct and active role in organizing the colonization of Virginia as director of the London-Virginia Company, one of those joint stock companies all of us Americans learn about in grade school social studies and Thanksgiving lessons. Hacklett never went to the colony himself, though, and died in 1616 at the age of 63. One of the main continuations of Hacklett's legacy is the Hacklett Society. The society was founded in the mid-19th century by a British historian, William Desborough Cooley, who originally wanted to create a Columbus Society to complement the Royal Geographical Society, which Cooley saw as not engaging enough in the study of historical primary sources and non-English sources. He was convinced to modify his proposed society by putting more emphasis on British sources, which also led to ditching Columbus and honoring Hacklett instead. This tapped into the so-called free-trade optimism of the mid-19th century, a kind of manifest destiny concept for British trade, the proposition that they should be selling their goods in every market around the globe, which, of course, was one of the driving forces for imperial expansion. Cooley's proposed society formally came into existence in December of 1846, and from the outset was torn between two goals, one of glorifying national achievements and another of engaging in more serious and critical scholarly analysis. Ultimately, as the century rolled on, the latter camp largely prevailed, and the publications of the society were recognized as significant scholarship, uh, rather than functioning as popular celebrations of the English heroes of the Elizabethan Age of Discovery, as some had hoped. Additionally, the society skewed back towards Cooley's original conception in actively working to provide editions and translations of non-British texts, such as Jordanus and Odoricus, and, in the 20th century, Ibn Battuta. 
The self-conception of the society, as indicated by the speeches and writings of its officers over the century and a half since its founding, retains a political component, and rather neatly traces the broader position of scholarship in the humanities relative to nationalism. This evolution is described by a recent president of the society, Roy Bridges, in his 2012 article, The Legacy of Richard Hacklett, Reflection on the History of the Hacklett Society, uh, which has also informed much of what I've been saying about the history of the society so far. Bridges shows how, in the 1890s, Sir Clements Markham, then president of the society, praised its, quote, patriotic zeal, end quote, and cited the heroism of the early British explorers as ennobling, much in line with what some of the society's first members were going after. In 1916, during World War I, President Albert Gray argued for the importance of highlighting how Western colonization had produced, quote, the two dominant factors of the modern world, the British Empire and the Great American Republic, end quote. Things are shifting, though, during the next war. In 1946, in a volume of essays celebrating the centenary of the society, the contributors, says Bridges, quote, continued to emphasize with approval Hacklett's role as an advocate of colonization and discovery, but the general tone is more nostalgic, if not pessimistic. Surely, complains J.A. Williamson, Hacklett's heroes cannot have wanted the state capitalism, the mechanized society, and the erosion of liberty characteristic of the first half of the 20th century. End quote. The 1960s sees much discussion of the society's improvements in the quality of its scholarship, but very little reference to its relation to imperialism. And by the sesquicentennial in 1996, the editors of the anniversary publication stated that, quote, any approval by the society of the British or European outthrust to other parts of the world would now be not uncommonly seen as contemptible, end quote. Just for due credit, that was Bridges offering a paraphrase of the original statement with bits of quoted language embedded in it, uh, but I'm not going to worry about distinguishing that kind of fragmented nested quotation in audio. Encountering the underlying imperialist program behind so much of the Victorian geographical scholarship I've been reading for this series uh, got me thinking. I was struck by how odd it felt to me to see scholars so overtly presenting the function of their work as being to contribute to the advancement of national glory. They are self-consciously acting in coordination with this larger national politics, uh, rather than pretending to stand outside of it or serving as critics and correctors of it. I was going to say something about how alien that kind of patriot scholar self-conception seems to an American humanities department, at least. But as I started to formulate a sentence along the lines of, the modern scholar sees their role much more as an analytical critic rather than a political activist, uh, the whole house of cards collapsed around me, because that obviously doesn't hold up to a moment's scrutiny. There's clearly something to it. Uh, part of the culture war in America is centered on allegations of anti-patriotism in our universities, but it doesn't break down into any neat categorical statements. Uh, I think perhaps the closest you could get, and even this has to be bracketed and qualified, uh, but you might say that it's generally true that humanities scholars are unlikely to believe that national glory is inherently connected to national dominance, militarily, economically, ideologically, 
And to the degree that we have people in this time of America first as a slogan, who do think that patriotism means striving for national dominance or believing that one's country is the best in all things and any assertion to the contrary is unpatriotic, then it's going to look like professors aren't helping further national glory. But all of that hinges on a very narrow definition of what national glory is, uh, not to mention what the nation is. Anyway, I'm going to leave that there. It's probably better material for a no-doubt heated conference panel somewhere on Is Medieval Studies Post-Nationalist? Anyway, to conclude, the Hacklet Society is still alive and active and put out two new books this year. A Walk Across Africa, J.A. Grant's account of the Nile Expedition of 1860-1863, and The Voyage of Captain John Narborough to the Strait of Magellan and the South Sea in His Majesty's Ship Sweepstakes, 1669-1671. I presume Sweepstakes was the name of His Majesty's ship, uh, but I like to imagine that Captain Narborough won a ship and expedition in a contest. And, actually, you know I can't just leave that sitting there untouched, uh, so let's see where Sweepstakes comes from, shall we? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a sweepstake was originally someone who swept up all the stakes, or bets, in a game, i.e. the person who took the pot. And that figuratively meant just a winner, a conqueror, a pillager, and as such, the OED tells us, became a popular name for ships in the 15th to 17th centuries. It does sound rather like a good name for a pirate ship. Sweepstakes also comes to be used to refer to the prize won in a contest, that is, the thing that the original sweepstake would be taking. And from that, in the 18th century, it starts being used to describe a kind of contest or lottery, which is pretty much the only sense in which it's used today. So that gave us a little bonus mystery word of sorts. Uh, I do still have a riddle, though, which I can dispense with rather quickly. The riddle is... I'm stiff with curved brass and spread around, within an image of the tongue is found. Set down, I speak not, but when moved, resound. So this is one of the riddles of Symphosius, as translated into English verse by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois. It's a fairly literal one. A rounded metal thing with a tongue inside that makes a sound when you swing it back and forth? Yes, the answer is tintinabulum, or a bell. I hope you've enjoyed our month-plus of medieval travelers and their accounts. You won't have to endure nearly as much promotion for our Jordanus audiobook going forward, for which this series was kind of a campaign. We are actually going to check in with another view of Odoricus next time, but that's going to be light on travel and heavy on miracles, transitioning us back into more of our normal kind of episode. That will also put us back on, hopefully, a more steady fortnightly release schedule, um, at least up until Christmas. While you wait, you can ponder new riddles and mystery words ahead of each episode by following us on Twitter, at MDTPodcast. Uh, I can take email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, and at that .com address you can find more information about the show, including bibliographical references for this and every episode. And of course, you can join our cohort of Patreon supporters by going to patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, or searching for Medieval Death Trip at Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
Patrons at any level get the audiobook, future audiobooks, and other bits of bonus content that will crop up here and there, uh, like the appendix episode we had for last time. A huge thanks to everyone who has become a patron since July. There's plenty of room at the table of honor in our little virtual Valhalla. And remember, national glory is transitory, but podcast glory is eternal. Skoll, and thanks for listening. <laughs>